In this episode of Beans Talk, we will be discussing Cleanup Crew Breeder Colonies. It's finally here. What is? We've talked and talked and talked about how you can do all of this stuff on your own, but we've never really told you how. And now, today's the day. We're going to teach you how to maintain your own cleanup crews through the use of breeder colonies. I'm excited. The biggest thing to remember about this is you're going to have to pay attention because sometimes you do everything right and it still just collapses. Yeah, well, any, any breeding operation is, is fickle. Yeah. But today we're going to kick off with isopods. So with isopod colonies, you don't need much. They're pretty easy to take care of. You just need four things. A plastic tote to put them in, some cocoa fiber substrate, some leaf litter to add to the substrate, and 20 to 100 isopods to start off with. What's the importance of the leaf litter? Leaf litter is important because it provides food for the isopods. They'll munch on the dead leaves and the other decaying matter in there, and it you don't have to worry so much about food. Now, you could throw in some vegetables and stuff to add nutrients to them if you want to use them to feed your critters. But the biggest thing for isopods is their cleanup crews. So if they get used to cleaning up while they're in your tote, they'll do a pretty good job while they're inside the enclosure as well. So is it, um, when you start a colony, is it the more the better to get the colony started? Or should you stay more on the, uh, on the 20 side of that, 20 to 100 to get started? I mean... I'm no expert on this, obviously, but I would say the more the better because it gives you a better chance of getting that jump start. But on the other hand, that's a lot of money and you risk a bigger chance of disease. If you want to play it safe, then stay closer to 30 to 50 between that 20 and 100. But if you're really eager to get this going, then yeah, you want to go up on the higher end. If you have the money and the space, would it be better to split that hundred up into two or three colonies? Yeah, that would actually work because they'll breed at the same rate. So then you'll end up, instead of having a hundred growing rapidly and having one large colony, you'll have three growing rapidly into large colonies. And it all works out pretty well. Nice. But it also takes up quite a bit of space and money. What's the benefit of breeding yourself other than the money savings? And is that significant? I mean, they can be pretty pricey. Even the common ones are anywhere between 10 and 50 for a colony, just depending on the size of colonies the breeder sells. So the biggest benefit is you save money, but other than that, you get to pick what kind of isopods you have. Like, if there's a certain kind you need to keep, like, powder orange or powder blue, those are really hard to find and very costly to keep replacing. So having a colony of those would be good because, again, you get to keep what you need instead of having to hope you can find it later on when you need it. So now that we know what we need and how many we need in a colony, so more colonies with fewer would be better, but a large colony is okay. Yeah. What do we need to uh, set up? So the first step would be to wash out the tote. You just bought it from the store. You don't know what's in it. You don't know if it's touched it. Wash it down. Spray it with the hose. Make sure it's nice and rinsed off. And then you're going to add in your cocoa fiber substrate. And after that, you're going to dampen the cocoa fiber. Because, again, isopods are crustaceans. They need water to breathe. 
And after you dampen that, you're going to add in your leaf litter, mix it around, mix it in the substrate, but not enough to where it's like an even mix, just so that some of that leaf litter gets down in there. Because you want that mostly on top, right? Right. You just want some down in there because they're not all going to come to the surface. Now, as far as the, the cocoa fiber, if you're buying the brick, do you need to moisten it after you expand the bricks? Some brands of the cocoa fiber bricks, when they fully expand, it's dry. Other ones, it's still damp. So just feel it. If it doesn't feel damp to you, then dampen it. So it needs to be damp to the cut. Yeah, the dampness of a soil after you pick up a rock that's been sitting there for a while. Isopods need that water to cross their gills. Mm. So if it's just like, oh yeah, it's a little bit wet, they're not going to get that. Do you have any tips on getting it damp to the right dampness and keeping it there? My favorite method is I take a misting bottle and I just mist it till the top is soaked. And then it drains down, and when it hits the bottom, it's all nice and damp, and it's not utterly soaked. Similar to watering a houseplant. You don't want it swimming, but if you get the top nice and wet, it'll soak to the bottom. Right. Like watering or misting down your arboreal and tropical environments. You just want them to be damp. You don't want it wet, because then mold and bacteria grows, and then that's a whole nother mess. So then after you're happy with the way your substrate looks, you'll just add your isopods. Put the lid on. Be sure you have ventilation because if the humidity gets up too high, everything gets too wet, and then that's also bad. Right. And as we discussed in a previous episode, the counterintuitive part to keeping the humidity up but not too high is an open top. Right. Like a mesh top, not open, open. Yeah, like ours have a mesh wire top on them. Yeah. Big enough to let everything, let the moisture and stuff out, but not big enough to where things are going to go in. We use smooth-sided totes so they can't climb. Wrapping up isopods, just some important things to remember here. Keep the substrate damp. They need the water. They breathe water. Keep it damp. And you need to keep it moderately warm, between 60 and 80 degrees, like most tropical and arboreal. So close to room temperature. Yeah. If you keep it around room temperature, you'll be golden. Ours sit out in our outbuilding where it hangs around 75, and ours are doing absolutely amazing. Keep an eye out on our website. They'll be going to sale like a month or so. All right, so up next we have millipedes. So millipedes, you know, they aren't your traditional cleanup crews. But we've already talked about that. What are millipedes good for, just in case somebody listening to the last episode? So millipedes are good for cleaning up the surfaces, like especially on your decor and stuff, because the isopods don't like going up there. They prefer to stay in the substrate. Well, they got to breathe. Well, yeah, but they can hold their breath. <laughs> but the millipedes will go across the top of your decor and eat the food and the waste. And they'll also skim the top where the isopods have missed. So they're good, but you have to be careful and make sure you house them with something that's not going to try to eat it because they're poisonous. Meaning if you bite it, you die. You bite it, you die. It's poisonous. It bites you, you die. It's venomous. Again, the materials for millipedes are simple. Just a plastic tote, some compost mix, leaf litter, and of course your millipedes. Just to back up a tiny bit, what size tote are you talking about? Because you can get a tote from like six inches by eight inches by three inches up to well I could lay down in one. I'm talking about between like a 20 to 40 gallon tote big enough to give them room and give them room to expand but not so big that you're gonna have to rearrange your household to do so. 
Uh, are millipedes something that anyone could get into? I know isopods are pretty easy to deal with and, and fairly easy to breed. So are, how easy are millipedes to, first of all, get? And is it are, are they worth the price to get if you're not going to breed them? So millipedes are fairly easy to breed. The, the ones we have, mil, bumblebee millipedes, there, put them in the container, give them food, and leave them alone, and they'll do their thing. But not all millipedes are like that, so you just have to go with the beginner breeds, like scarlet millipedes, chocolate millipedes, bumblebee, and it's basically, they'll eat the leaf litter as well, which is why you need it. And then they'll just do their thing, and you'll come back in two to five years and have babies. So it's a, it's a slow burn. Yeah. It's not like isopods where within a few months you can, you'll have a breeding, uh, successfully breeding colony. Right. Yeah. So for the casual one or two critter operation, no. not really worth it. No. This is for like, I have hundreds of enclosures. I'm bored. Let's do something fun. If you're not looking to breed them and sell them or breed them in general, they're not really worth it. So it's roughly $10 a millipede for what we got. The more advanced ones, I guess, the harder ones to take care of, can range anywhere between 20 to 100 per millipede. What's the lifespan of a millipede? Um, well, they mature in about two to three years. They live, depending on the millipede, anywhere between five and 10. There's some species that live upward of 20. So if you take a, an average, about a dollar a year to own a millipede. Yeah, that's the bumblebee millipedes and the other ones I've mentioned. We're about a dollar a year to raise per piece. So it could be worth it. It could be, but just to have some in your enclosure. Yeah. If it's uh, if you have one or two enclosures, just buy some. Yeah, they're real useful for like, especially if you have messy critters. Like Hero's pretty messy, and he's a vegetarian. So it would be a good fit for him. Our bearded dragons are super messy, but they eat bugs. So that's not a good idea. So the setup is going to be basically the same, though, right? Yeah, it's essentially the same. You put the compost mix in, you dampen it, you add the leaf litter, you mix in the leaf litter a little bit, and then you add your millipedes. But the biggest difference between these guys and isopods is the substrate itself. So if you'll notice, I've been saying compost mix, which is a mix of normal compost and manure sometimes it's other things but what i used was a manure mix but when you're getting compost if you're going to buy it and not make it and if you're getting manure make sure it doesn't have insecticides and pesticides in it right i bought evergreen compost mix because they are 100 percent natural everything comes from the trees if you buy if you just go to your local home goods store or um you know, uh, home improvement store, a lot of the compost and a lot of the manure have insecticide and um, um, pesticides, pesticides in them already. And that's because most of them go into a garden and you don't want the bugs in the soil. Right. So if you're going to do it, look for a brand like Evergreen. They don't use any pesticides because they use the scraps from trees and compost everything. Just make sure it's safe for the crickets before you put it in it, like always. We mention that every episode. Yeah.
do your research. Some important things to remember about millipedes. Um, add some veggies in for nutrients, because they can eat the leaf litter, but they're gonna get a little, they could get a little sickly just living off of that. So give them some veggies or fruits every now and then for them to munch on and keep the substrate damp. They don't breathe water. If they dry out, they will die. So keep the substrate damp, keep the humidity up. You need to keep it about arboreal humidity, that 40 to 60 ratio for most millipedes. There's tropical millipedes and there's desert millipedes that vary, of course. But for the most part, if you keep them within that arboreal range, then you'll be good. Check what you're buying before you buy it, so you can be ready when it gets there. Yeah, there's so many different species of isopods and millipedes and springtails for us to say, okay, you need this for this, this for this. We'll eventually have care sheets and stuff for, out for that, but it's going to be a long process because there's so many. Yeah, and we want to make sure we get everything right for everyone and not put more false information out there. Yeah. Next up, we're going to talk about millworms, another non-traditional. Millworms, you just need a small container, 10 to 20 gallons, depending on the size of the colony you want. You need some edible substrate. We'll get into that in a minute. And then, of course, your millworms. So the edible substrate, it's going to be like a cornmeal mix, cornmeal, wheat flour, something along those lines. Some people like to mix oats or uh, dry oatmeal in there and that's what the millworms are going to eat on those burrow through and munch their way through like worms and litter so that's your food right there you if you want to add nutrients to them because of course millworms can also be a big feeder for your critters then you'll have a dish with a potato in it and that'll give them some nutrients that'll give them sugars and starches and stuff for your critter as well as provide water for your mealworms because they can't just dip their head into a dish and drink. So eating that potato or any other veggies or fruits you give them will help add water and nutrients to them and keep them overall happier and healthier, of course. So to set up this enclosure, you need to use grains such as bran or oats for the substrate, which we just talked about. You add that in, you mix it up, don't dampen it. Don't dampen it. You don't want to make oatmeal or biscuits. No, you do not. Don't do it. Your container is going to have to be translucent just so it can let light in and keep the enclosure warm because, they're, again, they're room temperature. Most of these, actually all of the things we're going to talk about today are room temperature for the most part. There's, there's one exception, and that's what we'll talk about next. But be sure to have a container that lets light in so it can keep it warm. And then, leave, of course, leave the half potatoes like we just talked about in a shallow dish, they'll crawl up on it, they'll munch on it, they'll get their food and water from that if they don't want to get their food from the substrate. And yet, you have to replace that potato fairly regularly. Yeah, when it starts shriveling up, go ahead and take it out. Don't wait till you see the mold sprout, because that mold's going to get into your substrate mix. And millworms eat mold, but if it grows too fast, it's going to overwhelm them. If you want to, you can take the time and filter out the beetles and put them into another container. And they'll lay their eggs in there and the worms will start to grow up in there because the beetles will eat the millworms. A good thing to do would be when you see them turn into the cocoons, they'll look like that yellow cocoon Pokemon. Take, go ahead and take them out and put them in the other container and they'll turn into beetles in about a week or two and then they'll lay their eggs and die. And then you have another thing of millworms. It's a good way to start new colonies so you could take them and put them in a whole new container and let them grow there. And then you have multiple colonies going there. But it's also a great way to keep your numbers up 
because the beetles won't eat the worms, and the worms won't disturb the beetles when they lay their eggs. So it's just good to have that cycle, because by the time you have the mealworms in the one container run out and start turning into beetle, more and more beetles, the other one will start producing lots more worms. At what point do you transfer them to the enclosure? I would do when they're still small, because that gives you two or three weeks of mealworms, and they'll go through and eat the decaying matter and the mold and fungus and anything else that's not tied down. So mealworms are a pretty high turnover for cleanup crews. Oh yeah, absolutely. The biggest thing would be to have food in there for when your critter's hungry. They're just wandering around, and then your critter can be like, ooh, free snack. A good starter size colony is 24. You can do more if you want. You can go and buy a cup of 50 or 100 or 500 from PetSmart and start there. But a good, decent-sized colony for if you don't feel like splurging is 24. It'll do just fine. They'll grow very quickly. Their life cycle is eight weeks. If you're starting to get lots and lots of them and don't want to keep getting more, put them in containers and store them in a cold place, like the fridge. Again, do your research. Know what you're getting into. We've laid down the blueprints for you. It's up to you to figure out how you can make it work. Next, we have roaches. This one's not so much a cleanup crew as a feeder and a snack. They'll eat just about anything, but the big thing is they're used for feeding. Almost all critters love a good roach. So we're not just talking any roaches, like you can't go collect roaches you find in a random person's house and use those. Those have toxins in them that are not good for your critters. You'll need to specifically use Dubai roaches. The materials you need are very simple. You need egg mats and a 64 liter or roughly a 16 gallon container. So the important thing to remember about the container itself is you have to make sure it's smooth sided. Otherwise the roaches will climb up and nibble their way out. Setup's real simple too. You need to keep them between 85 and 90 degrees. This is the exception we were talking about. They like it warm. If it's not warm, they won't bleed. You also need to keep it between 40 and 60% humidity, that arboreal-esque humidity. And then make sure you have your egg flats vertical because those divots where the eggs are held will provide dark spots for them. And that's where they'll go to breed and lay their eggs and raise the babies. A good starter colony for Dubai roaches is around 200 because they don't live very long. And a good chance out of 200, you're going to have 150 that make it to maturity. Dubai roaches, super easy. Fairly cheap too. I've seen colonies online, four or five hundred of them for fifty, sixty dollars. They breed like crazy. I wouldn't recommend keeping these in your enclosure long term, but if you have a mess and you want it gone, drop a few roaches in there. The ones that don't get ate by your critter will scurry around and eat everything it can. Just be sure to pluck them out after a couple of hours because if there's nothing left, they'll go for your plants, your critter your isopods, whatever. Honorable mention is always springtails. Springtails are about the same as isopods. There's different kinds. You have some for tropical or boreal, desert. You need to keep them within the same temperature range and humidity range as isopods. Springtails pair really well with everything we've talked about. So they'll go in, they'll clean up the smaller things that got shoved into the substrate that the isopods and everything won't pick up because it's not a good meal for them. They're also really 
good for cleaning up mold and fungi specifically. They have a better tolerance for it. Springtails are really cost efficient. They breed like mad faster than anything else we've mentioned. A starter colony will cost you anywhere between 20 and 50 bucks depending on the breeder and the size. Just be sure to know what kind you're getting so it's good for your enclosure. Those are our cleanup crews. Next week we're going to be covering feeders and how to raise your own feeders. Stick around for that. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a comment, leave us a review, tell us what you think, give it a like, follow us on our socials, and follow us on our Patreon for complete and exclusive content. Bye! Bye!